Well, tonight we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 12. We went through three chapters on Tuesday night, and as we come forward tonight, we're going to be on that third chapter, chapter 12. I will survey and touch on chapters 10 and 11 as well. The reason we did those three chapters together, they're a nice fit. They're not particularly long chapters, but they all revolved around Rehoboam, who became the third king of Israel after the passion of his dad, Solomon, that third king in the line of David, actually the fourth king, if you include Saul. So it's, a, it's uh, 920-ish BC, and the great king David had stepped into eternity. His son Solomon had reigned, and Solomon stepped into eternity about the age of 60, and now Rehoboam has become king. And we know that Solomon made a lot of bad decisions in the latter part of his reign as king, and the consequences of, the, of those decisions have come upon his son Rehoboam and the nation of Israel. And in that context, before Solomon stepped into eternity, before, uh, due to his disobedience, God sent him a prophet that told him that the consequences of his sin and marrying all these women that were not Israelite women and worshipped other gods and appeasing them by putting altars for their gods on the mountains and the hills and promoting and providing for their worship, the consequence was that the nation of Israel would be divided in two portions. That ten tribes would be torn away, the ten northern tribes, and given to someone else, and that the descendant of Solomon, who is Rehoboam, would inherit two tribes. God had spoke that prophetically through the prophet before Solomon's passing. And now with his passing and his completion and stepping into eternity, now a whole new future lays in front of everybody for Israel and the divided kingdom, which will define them as a nation for the next couple hundred years going forward from this. And so Rehoboam came to power, and there's events that surrounded his life that we, like I said, we covered in detail on Tuesday. But there's a moment in his life, he reigned for 17 years, he died at the age of 58. And there's a moment that really symbolically speaks to us of his life, and it just really declares what he did with his life. He wasted his life. And we're told in verse 9 of chapter 12 that eventually this king from Egypt came up, uh, Shishak, verse 9, that he came up from Egypt against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. Remember, there's tremendous wealth from David passed on to Solomon, and Solomon passed on to Rehoboam. And uh, this, this pharaoh of Egypt, he, he took everything. He also carried away the gold shields which Solomon had made. I mean, these are huge gold shields. They're just worth, you can't even put a monetary value on them. The, the equivalent for our economy would just be so high right now, it's crazy. And he carried them away. And so then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. If there ever were two verses that described the follies and failures of a man who was so set up for success and who came so short of what God had for him. These two verses summarize Rehoboam so well. Gold is the metal of heaven. Heaven is described as being in gold, the throne room. Bronze is the metal of earth, the bronze altar where the sacrifices were made. Gold is in the holiest of holies in the house of the Lord. Bronze is the altar with the animal sacrifices and the sinful humanity outside the holy temple of the Lord. They truly are symbolic of eternity, gold, and bronze, temporal time. You don't read of anything in heaven being bronze. Only gold and precious jewels. God set him up. 
He received great gifts of gold on a personal wealth level and the, the treasury of the house of the Lord. When he, he didn't do anything to earn it. He was groomed by Solomon to be the successor. Solomon had who knows how many children. He's the only one referred to by name in the entire Bible. Out of all, he had 300 wives and all the concubines. He had all kinds of children, but the only one referred to by name is Rehoboam. He was groomed to be the successor to the great King Solomon, all the wisdom, all the wealth, and it's handed over to him, including the gold shields and all the treasures of the house of the Lord. He inherited gold, but he pursued bronze. It's a sobering tragedy of a wasted life to consider. So much opportunity, but it was lost opportunity. So tonight we're going to look at his lost opportunity, but we're going to look at it not just in the bad choices he made and how they affected him and the people he led, but the, what we can learn from them on a positive light. Because if there's one thing we learn in the human experience, we learn from our own mistakes, but it's better to learn from other people's mistakes. And if we can learn from other people's mistakes, then it's to our benefit. And in this text tonight, there are things that are so associated with Rehoboam that are his mistakes that tonight we want to learn from them and look at the positive so we can be sure that we don't step into eternity at 58 having wasted our life with incredible opportunity. In fact, before we get into the topic, I'll say this. In those parables of the minas and the talents that Jesus gave, where one gets one and buries it, another gets two and makes four, another gets five and makes ten, there, there's such a principle from those passages about time and stewardship with eternity, and I can't help but link those things to Rehoboam and what happened in his life. So this is the man who was set up for greatness, was given gold, but pursued bronze, and it's a story of lost opportunity. The first thing we see about his lost opportunity, it really began with rejecting good counsel. Now, there's three verses we're going to look at related to his lost opportunity. The man who went from gold to bronze. And they're very strong and profound statements. They really jump out at you in the three chapters surmising his life. It says in verse 10 that when he came to power... The northern tribe said, hey, your father was hard on us. How are you going to treat us? And he said, give me three days to think about it. And then he went back to those counselors. We'll call it the board of elders for Solomon. Now, if Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived until Christ came, it's safe to say that his board of elders is the wisest board of elders that ever existed. If you make them a cabinet like a government, or you make them truly like a board of elders, like a corporation, who would have been smarter and wiser than those guys? The expansion of the kingdom, the management of wealth, the management of politics and people, uh, how they grew the kingdom, they imported gold from Ophir, they did all these things, they hired the, the most skillful people to build their boats and run their ships, and the, the empire just expanded. It makes the game of Monopoly look like child's play. What Solomon did and what he did with these people, he had brilliant minds around him, and so when he wrote Proverbs, he said, in the multitude of counsel, there's wisdom. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about his board of elders right here. He said, by wise counsel, wage war. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his own experiences with these men. When Rehoboam came to power and they handed him the keys to the kingdom, there was the board of elders, these men 
who stood by his dad at the zenith of political, economic, military success. Now, we can't really say spiritual success, but we don't know how these men were. We all know you can work for someone who's not spiritual, and you're still spiritual, right? You can work for a carnal person, but you want to be a spirit-filled one. So we don't really know how they were in that sense, but we, it's safe to say, based upon the harmony of scriptures, that these guys were there to guide Rehoboam with really good decisions in coming to power, but he didn't, he didn't heed it. So he went to these men, he said, hey, what do you recommend? They said, look, these people, if you treat them kindly and treat them with respect, they'll follow you. You can be a leader for them and they'll follow you and you can take the kingdom forward. But then he went to his council of fools, the people who grew up with, his peer group. We might even say his high school peer group. Now, it's safe to say that though Rehoboam was groomed for greatness, like as an heir to the throne, it's safe to say he never wanted for things in life. He didn't work at Del Taco at 16 with his first job. He didn't mow lawns in Orange County as an immigrant or clean houses as a maid as an immigrant. Rehoboam, he, he went to, you know, private schools. He went to like Calvary Chapel High School or Modern Day or Sage Hill. I mean, he, he was given a higher education. They, Solomon made sure that Rehoboam got the best. And he has a peer group. Now, when you have everything and you're the guy in school that has everything, you have a bunch of yes men or yes women that follow you around. So he had all these, these, these friends that were foolish. They might, he might have just been a free gravy train for everybody, as they say. I'm just thinking he didn't, he so mismanaged everything he received that even though he was trained by his dad to handle it, because he never, it's like the butterfly doesn't break out of the cocoon. You, you can't just rescue it. The struggle is what makes you fly. You have to go through the struggle. See, the end game isn't what you've accomplished. It's who you became as you accomplished it. That's how life works. And I'm not sure what he accomplished, but I do know this. His high school peer group, they're a council of fools. And they said, hey, you know, tell them what to do. You're the boss around here. You got the gold shields. You got the money. You got the military. You got the button on the nukes. You're the boss. You tell them what to do. I mean, you're like, you're a bomb, man. You're, your grandfather's David. Your dad is Solomon. You tell those people, you tell those northern tribes, this is how we do it. That's literally what they did. You tell them my dad was hard on you, I'm going to show you what hard looks like. He just became a dictator and an authoritative, totalitarian boss without ever having accomplished anything in life. It's like sometimes when companies hire some smart know-it-all person, they don't know anything, and they bring him in. Anyone that's smart that works there is like, peace out. They start working on their exit strategy. And that's what's going on here. And his big mistake is, it says in verse 8, but he rejected the advice which the elders gave him. And then after the three days, he came back and he spoke harshly to the ten tribes. And it says, he rejected the advice of the elders and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. And this brings us to such a key point. That in the council of fools, there's nothing but folly and the philosophy that goes with fools. So we need to be really careful when we're at work, how people influence us. When we go away to college, how people influence us. When we go to public school. When we hang out with a peer group at the skate park or whatever we're doing. 
your peer group when you're a surfer in Carlsbad in the 70s. You need to really think about who's influenced you and how they're influencing you and its impact on your life. Influences are like this. Three minutes, three hours, three days, and a lifetime. So really help you gauge, like, what's the value of what's influencing you? Whether it's a human being, a person trying to push your buttons or tell you what to do, family member, relative, co-worker, uh, unhealthy relationship in a romantic sense, college professors who can go to a class an entire semester, never learn the topic, but be told how to think properly according to their worldview. It happened to my kids in public colleges, I know from experience. Three-minute people are the people you talk to about the weather. This is someone you get along copacetically with your neighbors that are kind of, they cause problems, but you don't want to create, you don't want to give them a reason to not like you, so it's a three-minute conversation. How are you doing? How's the weather? How's the job going? Good. Three hours is someone that you can have a relationship with. You can go have coffee at Moon Goat with them. You can go out to lunch somewhere with them. Go out to Wahoo's, hang out for lunch, have a great meal. Go to vacancy afterwards. You can spend three hours with somebody, and they don't tear you down. You know, it's pretty iron sharpening iron. Good conversations. Yeah, well, Lord bless you. You know, great to hang out with you, and uh, we'll see you next time. Three-day people are people you go on a road trip with, or on a, uh, like a business trip, if you will, but you choose to. Three-day people are people like you can really get in the car with Jeremy Camp, like back in the day, and have really meaningful conversations with someone about the Lord and where they're at and where things are at, worldview, human philosophies. That's, that's a three-day person. And a three-day person is a solid person. After that, it's pretty much indefinite. It's people that you, you know, they're good people, they pour into you good things, and they're good influence on your life. And the way you really can determine someone that's three minutes, three hours, or three days, or indefinite, is where's their faith at? What kind of faith do they have? And what kind of fruit does it produce? Life is too short to let faithless, godless people produce bad fruit, who produce bad fruit produce bad fruit in you. Our minds, our hearts, and our lives are like a garden. And you've got to keep the locust out, and you've got to weed out the things that shouldn't be there. You've got to tend your garden of who you are, your spirit, mind, and body, your soul, your person. It's amazing to me, look back in my life, how certain things people said one time in three minutes hindered me for years. I'll give you a good example. I walked into a church in 1983 at Calvary Chapel, wanted to do the right thing with the Lord. It would be four years later before I got it right with the Lord. I walked into a church. A person walked up to me and said, yeah, you're Joey Brown, you know, pro surfer, California kid. I heard you like Santana. Santana's of the devil. Then the next thing they say is, I heard your mom's a Catholic. You know, all Catholics are going to hell. That is the first two things a stranger said to me when I walked to the door at North Coast Calvary Chapel in Encinitas in 1983. That negative statement, I allowed, that's the, you know, because there's people like that that talk like that. The problem isn't them, it's a the problem that affect me. I let that keep me from an evangelical church and going back to that church for four years. I would have an attempted suicide and be in a straitjacket before I went back to that church. It's a three-minute person. It's like, it's like jiu-jitsu, taekwondo. You just send a car, wax the floor, you know, Miyagi. You're just doing that. You give them three minutes, yeah, okay. As I got older, a few people have been offended because I said, all right, next thing, after church. See, in a big church, there's three-minute people. They're waiting to corner the pastors after every service at Big Calvary. 
They're three-minute people. I gave them 30 minutes, and I realized as time went on, I should probably give them three minutes because it's the same thing. See, Romaine understood that. Pastor Romaine, he said, did you do what I told you to do? No, then don't even talk to me. We have nothing to talk about because otherwise you're just going in circles. You look at the faith of a person and what that fruit looks like of their faith and then how it affects their philosophy of life. And say, is this someone that I want pouring into me? And is this someone that's going to receive from me pouring into them? Because you younger people realize as you go through with life, there's people that are pouring into you that you receive from. And then eventually there's people around you, like your peer group, that want to learn. And you can pour into them and vice versa. As iron sharpens iron, birds of a feather flock together. And as you get older, you want to pour into young people that will receive what you have to say. And they'll grow and learn from it and be fruitful for it. But at 62, I can say, 62 years of life, I've let way too many three-minute people have way more influence on my life and my thinking than I should have. And I can't change that, but I can speak to young people and say, hey, ask yourself, is this a three-minute conversation, a three-hour lunch, or a three-day road trip, or is, this, or is this someone I can really hang out with and we're going to build each other up? We're like-minded for the kingdom of God, for walking by faith, saved by faith, living by faith, walking by faith, the blood of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom, the glory, the return of Christ. You can have a three-minute conversation with that person, but you can also go on a three-day road trip with that person because I've done it. His big mistake that started all of his problems at the very beginning of his administration as king was that he rejected the advice which the elders have given him. It was all there for him. And, you know, Grandpa David said this in Psalm 1, to to sit not in the counsel of the ungodly. He had the wisest men in the history of humanity right there trying to help him, and he goes and hangs out with his high school fools and becomes a bigger fool than any of them because they weren't entrusted with the keys of the kingdom and the gold shields and the calling from God to be the king of Judah in the line of David for the coming of the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was. So when people want to give you advice, this is a good thing to say. Ask yourself, would I want to switch places with them? That's a good gauge. Would I want to switch places with that person? See, if Pastor Chuck gave me advice, and he did, as a minister of the gospel, I'd have to look at Pastor Chuck and say, would I want to switch places with this guy? Well, it looks pretty fruitful, huh? 3800 South Fairview Avenue is a lot of good fruit, not to mention Twin Peaks, Marietta, and Vita, and all these other things. How about the Harvest Book and all the people he influenced for the kingdom and their fruits? Skip Isaac, Greg Glory. I mean, uh, yeah, I can switch places with Pastor Chuck. Yeah, that's good counsel. That's someone you should listen to. But it's amazing how often we'll listen to someone who's a failure trying to tell us how to become a success. So ask yourself, where is their faith at? What kind of fruit is it producing? And what kind of philosophy of life comes from their faith and their fruit? And if you don't want to, if you wouldn't trade places with them, why would we ever let them influence you? Why would you do that? Only you can answer that question. And I know from my own life, the folly I've gone after by letting godless men and women influence me in a moment walking through a church or just in who I hung out with. I saw a clip of Mel Gibson the other day, and he said, you know, the, the most terrifying fear for all people is the fear of public humiliation. And he said, you know what? I'm so past that now. I don't care what anyone thinks. And let me tell the younger people, you care more when you're younger, you're a little bit older. You're like, you care, but not as much. 
And then you're totally unfiltered by the time you're 80, so you, know, <laughs> you really don't care whether you know it or not. Lost opportunity for him began by not recognizing his need for other people that could pour into him and help him in his journey and that he could grow and learn with them and share the journey with them. His lost opportunity began with thinking he had it all figured out just by default because he's Solomon's kid and he's been groomed for such a thing. And that's a problem when you hand people gold shields. They didn't earn them. And that's the problem that you get. That's the problem that you get. So, the way we're going to learn from this mistake of rejecting good counsel is to seek good counsel and good influences. To hang out with godly people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and fear the Lord, who honor his word and are fruitful and live by faith and take steps of faith and believe in the miraculous and speak the miraculous and are the miraculous. That's who you want to hang out with. Eternal people, not people whose favorite color is gold in heaven, not bronze on earth. People whose lives reflect the kingdom and the coming of the, of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and the setting their mind on the things above. Those are the people we want more than three minutes with. But people who are bronze, 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 they wake up and think bronze, live bronze, and, and trade bronze. Just three minutes. Yeah, the marine layer is pretty tough this year. That's it. Don't let them shape your life. Surround yourself in the multitude of godly people. And that was his first big mistake for lost opportunity. He lost, he didn't see his need to be poured into by people who knew more than him. He just had it all figured out. So that's a good one to learn from. The second one is it says in chapter 12, it said this of him, that he forsook the law of the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. So what happened was he, he was going to, the, the northern kingdom rejected him as king. And he sent the tax collector, they killed him. And then he's ready to go to war with 100,000 soldiers. God sends him a prophet and says, don't do that because this is of me. So he wisely heeds that counsel and doesn't go to war. There are moments of Rehoboam. You go like, what a, man, what a hard thing to understand. He's paradoxical in some ways, actually, an enigma. So he doesn't go to war. He says, okay, we're we're two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So I'm going to strengthen all the cities in Judah and Benjamin. So he strengthened. What he did is he still had that afterglow of wisdom from his dad. So he strengthens all these cities, uh, strengthens them militarily, gives them the weapons they need, the food they need, the storehouses. He fortifies what is his. So it's a huge retraction. But what it retracted to, he made it strong. That's what he did. And then eventually, in the north, Jeroboam, who was his adversary, He persecuted all the true believers. So from the 10 tribes, anyone that wanted to serve the Lord came to Jerusalem and to the south, as did all the Levites and the priests. So it's not a point in the text tonight, but he fumbled the golden opportunity because God bought him all the godly people. Anyone that wanted to serve the Lord left the northern tribes and came and joined him. So not only did he not listen to the counsel of the godly leaders, but God brought him great people, the kind of people you want to hire and work with and partner with in the journey of life, spiritually and economically. And they came to him. He was a haven for them. And for three years, they all walked in the ways of the Lord while Jeroboam was up in the north building altars to golden cows and expelling the people that would want to walk with the Lord. So as bad as it was with Rehoboam in the south, it was worse with Jeroboam in the north who inherited those ten tribes, the former ambitious worker for Solomon. Solomon made Jeroboam extremely powerful, Rehoboam's adversary. And that was the irony of God's chastening on Solomon's house after he was gone. 
that the one he let rise up with ambition is the one who was at war with his son after he was gone, Jeroboam. So Solomon had consolidated these things and he did all this good stuff and smart stuff, political, power, money stuff. Then it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, that it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. Oh, man. So all, he became a haven for refugees, godly refugees. And for three years, it's going good. But he strengthens these cities and fortifies them and gets full of himself. It's as in his mind, it's like, I did this. He's like Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar said, oh, I did all this. You know, he's like that. He's like, it says, look at the context of chapter 12, verse 1. For the man who, of lost opportunity, he rejected good counsel. And then it says here, when he had established the kingdom and strengthened himself. So when it was his strength, the arm of flesh, the pride of life, when he had strengthened himself, he'd given all the men that he had under his thumb, wine and women and power. He's a true politician. Such a human politician. And then he had strengthened himself and he's got his piece of planet Earth. He's got like all of Orange County. Maybe a little more than that. Throw in some Riverside County, Chino Hills as well. Like the territory he had was pretty good size. He might not have the North, but he's got all of this and all of its resources. And it was when he was strengthened that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. See, it's enough that he did it himself, but when you read the text, you realize he stumbled others when he did it. That's what's disheartening. And it reminds us that we have that capacity within ourselves as well to do the same thing. Now, the chain reaction of being confident in ourselves is to not be confident in the Lord. The chain reaction of being prideful is to not depend upon the Lord. And one of the dangers of being smart politically and smart economically and having that kind of power that money will, will bring you in this sense is to trust in your strength and not see the Lord who gave it to you. And this was his big mistake. He forsook the law of the Lord. Now, the law of the Lord, of course, is the law that God gave Israel in the Old Testament. The law We call it the law of Moses, right? It's the Ten Commandments, the moral law. It's the civil law, how they were to be governed as a people, kidnappings, murders, ransoms, stealing, lying, cheating, small claims court and full superior court in Santa Ana type of law, civic law, how people get along and live together and function together. Then religious law, which is the priesthood. So, right, it's the religious holidays and all that went with it, the burnt offerings, the trespass offerings, the sin offerings, tabernacles, Passover, Pentecost. So the law of God, bear with me here, stay with me, is important is the moral law, the Ten Commandments for each individual, the civil law for a society the size of Orange County, and the religious law with the temple there and the gold shields and the bronze altar for offerings on how we're going to worship the Lord. So even though the kingdom had retracted, he still had what he needed to be fruitful and diligent and faithful and, and fulfill his purposes in life. But herein, five years into it, when he, with the intelligence that he received from his High education, he's like one of those higher education people. He knows enough from what he learned from his dad and being educated by those guys how to do business this way, how to bribe, 
how to do this and how to trust in yourself. And that's what he did. Because in the previous chapter, it said that in those cities, he made them very strong and fortified them. So as he established his kingdom, as he strengthened himself, he was quite certain he could withstand any attacks from Jeroboam in the north, any attacks from Pharaoh in the south, any attacks from Syria in the north, or Edom uh, in the south to the southeast, or Moab and Amnon directly to the east. After all, David, remember, David conquered everybody. Then Solomon had him in check as he expanded militarily. Rehoboam grew up in a time of peace with no war. But by the time he's in the heart of his reign, there's war. There's civil war. But he was confident five years into it with these things. Now, when it's, he forsook the law, and this is the great danger. I was, I was thinking about this. The law, of course, represents the word of God in general for all of us. But the law was very deliberate and intentional for them. And by the way, we know that in the law of the Lord, there's salvation. So we don't get saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. And they really, as the New Testament says, they're a teacher, a private tutor to explain to us that we need to be saved through faith in Jesus and what he's done for us, that we're not going to be good enough to ever get to heaven. Yet God gave Israel the law in this covenant to convert the soul. Somehow, as they would hear the Ten Commandments read, or the Torah it's called, and they studied the Old Testament, that they would say, you know, Abraham was the father of faith. Isaac sowed in the famine by faith, and Jacob lived by faith, and Joseph, by faith, fulfilled the things of the Lord. He, you know, blessed the kids, you know, like all that we read about the faith of those people prior to Moses, and even the faith of Moses, by faith, his parents put him in the Nile River, right in the basket. By faith, Moses forsook the riches of Egypt to esteem the persecution by being identified with the Jews, which is called the reproaches of Christ in the context of his life. So the law of God was there to save Rehoboam from himself, to save his soul, to stir up faith, and to help him make really good decisions as a king. But he forsook the law. And you know, the law of God is perfect. It'll never change. In this universe, in eternity, in time, space, and matter, though we're not saved by the law of God, never judge the law of God. Always let it judge you. See, in our modern generation, well, all these people have things they don't like about God's law. They attack God's law. And they try to make God seem unreasonable. Like he said, you can't eat shrimp. So do we put that with that? You can't have a same-sex marriage or whatever. See, they take things and they twist the word to their own destruction. God forbid that anyone under my watch as a pastor would deny the law of the Lord as a final authority of truth in all things pertaining to this universe. You make a big mistake to cut even one sentence out of God's law and how it pertains to the human experience. Now, we're told to rightly divide the word of truth, so you want to understand God's law as it is given to us. And we do realize that the dietary law did pass, and that's very clearly interpreted for us in the New Testament. And we also know that as we read the New Testament, it sheds light on the law. Jesus taught the Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount and explained to us what they really mean because it's in the heart and the internal, not the external. But he also taught us that we have to be saved through faith in him. That's why we keep going through, that's why we're just reading through the Bible. That's why Pastor Chuck read through the Bible. Because it's the whole counsel of God. Paul the Apostle references the law of God time and time and time and time again and gives New Testament insight on it and New Testament application. When a person rejects the law of God and rejects the Bible as a whole within which the law is contained, we go against the science of the universe, the science that shapes our morality or lack thereof. 
the science of the soul. And when someone like Rehoboam rejects the law of God, they might as well reject gravity. Because gravity is a physical law that we all know. If we reject gravity and go jump off the Logos building saying, I reject gravity, it will not rule over me, you will fall from the seventh floor and you will find out that gravity always wins. Well, the same is true with God's law. Jesus said that not one jot or tittle will be done until all is fulfilled and complete. No. He fulfilled the law, but he's exalted his word even above his name. Rehoboam took the compass that God gave him to lead his life, and he threw it away. And in so doing, he threw away all the potential what his life could be. He rejected gravity for his life. He rejected his equilibrium. He rejected the thing that God gave him to guide him to make good decisions as a human being and to, be, to have his soul saved, to live a meaningful life, to be blessed of the Lord, to be the head, not the tail, and have all the blessings. He rejected it when he was full of himself. So the lesson to us is don't be full of ourselves and definitely do not reject the word of God. All scripture is given to us by God that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It corrects us, it reproves us that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. WG, you know this already, but this is our compass. This will always steer us in the right way. And in the testimony of 35 years of pastoral ministry, I can tell you, all the decisions I would regret are related to not obeying the word of God or be willing to apply it. Because there's difficult things with the word of God, right? I talked about that with Job last week, talking about Job. I used to read the book of Job in two days. I just don't like those 42 chapters. I don't like them. I don't like them at all. Like green eggs and ham, Sam I am. They're hard to read. I don't want to bring that on my life. Do you want to bring it on yours? I mean, I'm at Job. I'm like, we'll just keep driving. But now, as I mentioned the other night, when I'm older, I don't mind reading the book of Job for two and a half weeks and to think about it because it's all there for a reason. Job's friends going on and on and on. I'm like, well, yeah, and the Lord's like, yeah, so don't go on and on and on about nothing. Don't think you're a know-it-all, especially with people that are suffering, right? It's all there. So let it mold us and shape us, all of it, the difficult parts, the parts that we find perplexing or, or hard to grasp. Just receive it, like Billy Graham. That's how Billy Graham found his power in ministry. He received the word of God, all of it. And he literally said to the Lord, I, there's parts I don't get, I don't think I'll ever get, but I believe it all, and I'm going to preach it all from here to eternity. And isn't that awesome that he did? For you and I to finish strong this journey of life and to fulfill our opportunities and not have to be lost opportunities, we need to hold fast to the word of God in all situations. His doom really, well, he rejected good counsel, but he forsook the law, and that was it. What good can come from, fors from forsaking the law of God? Only evil. Because you're going against gravity. Spiritual and moral gravity. Now, the final thing we get is he, in the last chapter, chapter 12, after the part about the gold shields and the bronze shields, it says in verse 14 that he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. So this is the hat trick here, you know, hat trick being three things put together. So he rejected good counsel, he forsook the law of God, and he did not, he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord, the Lord is God. So rejected good counsel. He can do it on his own. He forsook the standard, the compass to guide his life. And then he 
he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Now, this is interesting because you think like, the, you know, councils, you think of councils being intelligence, making good decisions. But here it's about, this, this phrase actually has a couple elements to it. It holds him accountable that he did not prepare himself. Okay, so he didn't prepare his heart. Let's think about this. He didn't prepare his heart. He did not prepare his heart, who he is. He didn't prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Of course, Jesus told us to seek, knock, and ask, to go after those things. We know he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to us. Seeking of the Lord is, of course, throughout the Bible, the supreme thing to do every day. Since we're made by Christ and for Christ and in him we consist, it stands the reason that every day of life is a gift of life from the Lord. And we should be watching and ready for the day of the Lord every day. The day belongs to the Lord. Our time is in his hands, our seasons and times. The day is fashioned for us before we yet existed. There's a literally like a count on the days that each of us gets. Like we know how many days are behind us, but we don't know how many days are in front of us, but the Lord does. Like right now, I can almost see like, a, like little numbers over each of you, and you can see it over my head. How many days does Pastor Joy have left on planet Earth? Do you see one column or two columns? Do you give me three? Do you give me at least 100 days? How about four columns, more than 1,000? How about five columns? Hey, it's over my head and it's over yours. Don't make the dash between your birthday and the ending date lost opportunity. That's what we're learning from Rehoboam tonight. Make it fulfilled opportunity to the fullest. Some of you feel really good about how you're living your life. Maybe some of you not so much. We need to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the, Lord, the Lord is first and foremost. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first and great commandment. And you shall love your neighbors yourself. The second one, because we prove our love for the Lord by vertically by our ability to love people horizontally. And if we get it vertically, then we get, in we get strengthened and empowered by him to be able to do it horizontally because that's the challenging part, right? I wanted to serve the Lord in ministry. God, I want to serve you. And I became a pastor. And after a year of serving people, I'm like, hey, I'm quitting. I'm putting in for a transfer. I thought I was serving you, not people who don't appreciate what I do for them. And the Lord's like, what do you think ministry was? This, in losing your life, you'll find it. This is where you'll find your life. Serving, forgiving, growing, and going forward. So if we take the lesson that he didn't, he didn't make time. See, Rehoboam had things to do, places to go, people to bribe. He had all this stuff going on. He didn't make time to seek the Lord. Now, Daniel, who prospered in Babylon and is as economically successful as anyone who's ever been in the Old Testament, I mean, he had all that power. He didn't even care, though, right? They give him the gold chains, like, whatever, dude, keep it. You're, you're done tonight, you know? He made time three times a day to seek the Lord. He kept his heart, like he just, three times a day, he sought the Lord early in the morning. Ah, oh, Lord, just make sure I'm right on this one. Like, check my heart. Like, uh, help me deal with this thing. These guys coming against me and the threats and this and that. Like, he, he, you know, when you seek the Lord, you're, you're, you're inviting him to, like David said in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and try me and see if there'll be any evil way in me. You're in seeking the Lord and preparing our hearts to be at the Lord. We're like, Lord, correct me. And as I said last week about humility, as humbling as it is to be corrected by the Lord, it's way more humbling to be corrected publicly by your friends and even worse, by your enemies. 
Because your friends will say what you want to hear, but your enemies will say what you don't want to hear. But it's probably more true in many cases, especially when it comes to reproof and correction. Just a reminder in this text that he didn't make time to prepare himself to seek the Lord. He did not make time to seek the Lord. It's a good reminder in our busyness, because there's always things to do. I've got things I want to do. I've got big eight, mid eight, and evening 10. I've got 26 things I do every day that just have nothing to do with my things of the day, other than just things I'm doing consistently in my life. My time with the Lord, prayer time, this thing, that thing, dogs, medicine. You know, like we all have a list. Stretching, hydrating, focusing, meditating, clear my mind what the day's all about. Listen, man, I got things to do too. We all got things to do. Before I go to bed, hey, I always, you know, the next day, 6 to 10, 10 to 2, 2 to 6, 6 to 10, there it is. The big three, boom, 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 boom. B's, boom, boom, boom. A's, B's, C's, D's, whatever, I'll probably never get to it, but nonetheless, if I'm effective today, we'll, we'll hit these things, right? We all have things to do. There's nothing more important to do than let Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and the one who holds our breath in his hands, establish our day. And there's nothing more important to do than to prepare our hearts to be with the Lord. You don't want to fill your mind with things contrary to the Lord or distracting from the Lord before you spend time with the Lord. It's been proven that everything that pulls you off a project dissipates your energy and your ability to fulfill that project. In other words, if you get distracted by this social media or this thing or that thing, you're trying to do your morning devotion, each time you're pulled away, you're losing strength, you're dissipating, you're, you're bleeding out, if you will, the energy and the ability to focus on what you're doing. That's why it's so important when you're writing a book that you get to it in the morning and you don't look at the text from Timmy. You don't look at this call that came in. You're focused because each time you're pulled away, you lose the creativity of that time. It dissipates your energy. And I don't have much left. And neither do you. We want to be more efficient with our time and energy. And when you chase your tail around like this, like you just, you're just going in circles. So you spend time with the Lord and you know what really matters and you know what the main things are and you don't get pulled out of your lane or off your game. That's what happens. And you stay focused. Because we all know this. This distraction, then that distraction. That's, and you just lose it. So you keep the Lord first. You prepare your heart every morning to be with the Lord and you keep him first. And then you got to keep him first. You, it's, it's, a, it's a loving relationship. I love my wife very much. And I don't spend time with my wife because Jennifer says, you better spend time with me. Like, I want to spend time with her. She's hot. In the morning, she's there on that couch, and we look at each other, I'm like, you know? She's like, <laughs> I love my wife. She's always A on my list, right? We're going to walk with Jennifer. We're going to ride the e-bikes with Jennifer. We're going to go shopping with Jennifer. I don't need, that's, how we want, that's how the Lord would have us to be. That we, I want to be at the Lord. I'm excited to see what he wants to do today. I want to prepare my heart and get after what he has for me. But in so doing, I don't want to be distracted by the doing, but more be focused on the becoming. Because again, it isn't so much about what we do in this life. It's about who we become when we're doing it as unto the Lord. In fulfilling his purposes as author and finisher of faith, we become the person we're meant to be like Christ. That's the, the real prize isn't what we've accomplished. It's who we became as we prepared our hearts, spent time with the Lord, and let him do that good work and will that he has in our life. That's the real prize. The real prize is the day of the Lord knowing that you let him construct you 
the remodel, the rebuild, <laughs> you know, you just let it, yeah, that's, that's the prize. Rehoboam didn't let that happen. The real prize of life is to delight yourself in the law of the Lord and let him direct our steps. The real prize of life is to trust not in our own understanding, but to seek the Lord and let him guide everything for us. To prepare our heart to be with the Lord and to want to be with the Lord and to want to serve the Lord and do it because we, we really want to. It was never in Rehoboam. It's like the Gatorade commercial that in you. It was never in him. I hope it's in you. Because there's transformation in preparing our heart and prioritizing the Lord. He had gold shields that became bronze. He had no choice in getting two tribes. That was predetermined. But he poisoned his two tribes. He poisoned them. He had 17 years. And what he left behind was far more chaos than what he inherited. It was truly lost opportunity. So it's a good reminder to us to fulfill all of our opportunities as unto the Lord. Yes and amen.